Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. As we embrace the sustained joy of the Easter season, we invite you to join us every week on this show where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We're also on SiriusXM channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have an important show for you today. We have Senator Marsha Blackburn joining us at the bottom of the hour, along with my TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. We're going to discuss with her a new act that she's just introduced. It's called the Woman's Right to Know Act, and um, its purpose is to help protect the health of pregnant women and unborn children by providing adequate medical information for informed consent before abortion procedures. You know, informed consent is a very important concept in modern medicine. I say modern because it wasn't always uh, thought to be important that the patient understood exactly what was going on, that the patient could make an informed decision knowing all the facts, for instance, possible side effects, possible complications. What would happen if the patient didn't opt for a certain procedure or a treatment? How about other alternatives? All these things are part of informed consent, and we take these things very seriously in medicine, and it's great to see Senator Blackburn making sure that this kind of informed decision-making process is applied equally across all these uh, different parts of the medical profession, including abortion, uh, which I'm sorry to say is part of the medical profession. It shouldn't be, but it is, and things should be applied equally, including informed consent. So that's great that she's working on that. Before we get to Senator Blackburn and my colleague Maureen Ferguson, we'll be talking to Sue Ann Mayer. She's the wife of Fran Mayer. She and her husband were named Knight Commander and Dame Commander in the Order of St. Gregory the Great by Pope Francis just last year. Uh, Together, they do great work advancing Catholic principles and ideals. They've been in California, they've been in Colorado, now they're in Pennsylvania. Lately, Sue Ann has been working getting um, the Special Olympics back off the ground after a hiatus of dur- during the pandemic. So many things were put on hiatus. And one sad thing that one sad consequence of the pandemic has been the pausing of things that are important for the more vulnerable parts of our population, the disabled, for instance, and the pausing of things like the Special Olympics. So we're going to talk to her about that. Joining us now, we have a dear friend of the Catholic Association. Her name is Sue Ann Mayer. Her family, Fran and Sue Ann Mayer, were named Knight Commander and Dame Commander in the Order of St. Gregory the Great by Pope Francis just last year. They both do great work advancing Catholic principles and ideals, each in their own sphere. Sue Ann has been working steadfastly to get the Special Olympics up and running after being hit very hard and in a very, especially uh, tragic way, I think, during the pandemic. Not that all of it hasn't been tragic, but... I think it's uh, especially sad that the Special Olympics um, had to be derailed because of COVID. So we wanted to talk to Sue Ann about that. So welcome to the show, Sue Ann. Thank you so much. This is great. So how long have you been working um, with the Special Olympics? 
Well, we came, I've been working with them as a coach for nine years. So I just up, updated all my, my certifications and, you know, background check and all the things that we do as a coach. This, we've been working together since Dan met the Special Olympics team when he first came here. He met them in bowling. And from bowling, we, we met kind of the leader of our little Bucks County group is, is uh, Tom Delaney. He's a teacher of special ed and a um, Bucks County Teacher of the Year several years ago. Anyway, with Tom Delaney and a group of other men and women, we I got together and was helping out and then coaching with track and long distance running. And then from that group, there's a, a, another group that does basketball, which I, Dan loves. Our son, Dan, has Down syndrome and he is 30 years old. And so he really basically, before COVID hit, he was doing both Bowling on Thursday, track on Saturday morning, long distance running on Sunday afternoon, and basketball. It was tournament time, so it could have been any day. I think the the last thing that we did was a tournament at the community college that lasted all day. And that would be the place uh, two weeks ago that we got our, our second COVID vaccine. So it's it's been a long, a long year for Dan and for lots of athletes. They normally would be doing two two, three sports, they'd be training, there would be overlapping. Um, All of us would be together really a great deal of the time and taking care of a lot of kids that don't have super involved families. So um, I I was able to hook up with a program that was pretty developed and has maintained, even during COVID, our little long distance running group still meets at Falls Township Park on Sunday. And we we go before um, and we, we hustle back for 1130 Mass where Dan's involved with um, taking up the collection and things like that. But really, Dan is better because of the coaches that really are so involved in his life. It's, it's really faith in action when you see some of these coaches who don't have children and they're not coaching because they're, they're trying to keep their child safe or and motivated they're there because they love kids with disabilities they love kids they love to teach and so i think that when we left colorado and archbishop shapu brought us to, to from denver to philadelphia i did not teach middle school algebra and morality which i'd been teaching for 40 years so it was a good fit for me to jump into that you know coach the one to many that i love so much and and i think that the kids grow to depend on us um, to listen to them and to talk with them and really to listen to them and try to block out some of the really sad things going on in the world. And I think Special Olympians athletes really have been isolated and lonely. And even though the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania voted to go back to in-person competition, Pucks County, the board of directors voted not to go into in-person competition. They felt it wasn't safe enough. And so we're still all virtual doing, you know, multiple things virtually. And some kids like the virtual our son doesn't really like the virtual at all. He'll only do one game of bingo. But what you see is that 
even though COVID has been, we don't know anybody, any athletes that have had COVID or are telling us that they've had COVID. Um, we don't know anybody. Um, we know parents and we know family members or peripheral, peripheral members. I think our athletes are so sensitive. They've just really suffered this kind of really loss, a sense of loss. And they're aware in the community that there's a sense of loss. You see a sadness in them. I think that wasn't there 14 months ago when they were meeting and competing and fighting with each other for the ball or for their, for the medals that they get at Penn state. There was no Penn state. There was no fall festival at Villanova, all these wonderful things that, that, that really make their lives rich. Sue Ann, I know a lot of young people that have suffered a lot during the pandemic because of the withdrawal from their normal um, social interactions. Do you think that the people who are running things and in Bucks County, for instance, do you think that they're taking those side effects of the of, of the shutdowns? Are they taking that enough into account? And especially with children and young people with disabilities? Well, I, I was very vocal about that. And I really felt that the the depression was something that they weren't that 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 Bucks County wasn't really looking at, and so there's a core group of us that were very upset that that you know the the core group that does track and and long distance running because we can be outside. Of course, um, you know I understand the swimming in the pool. Maybe they don't want to. I I don't know. We don't have a huge group of athletes in Bucks County that come from group homes, and that's I. Think think the group home for special needs adults was hit as hard as the nursing homes were and i think when you hear when you see those really high numbers for for persons with disabilities uh, contact getting covid and having their family members get covid i think we're talking about group homes i i i can't i can't get anybody to break those numbers down for me but i don't know anyone and we our our normal track in Bucks County, Lower Bucks, just at 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 uh, with Tom Delaney is about 165 athletes. That's how many we train for track for the spring for our spring sport, and we take about 45 of them up to uh, Penn State with us. We I don't know anybody who's gotten. COVID. We, I don't. I mean, I, I know families that, that were really afraid and completely locked down. That was not us. And Fran and I are older. I mean, we'll be 73 this year. But the moment we could be in a restaurant, we were <laughs> on the porch in the restaurant. And I can't blame of, you. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, it's just it just doesn't it just didn't make any sense to me. So we are fully vaccinated. Um, although most of my friends are not, I, I feel that for Special Olympics, there is going to be have the vaccine. That's your ticket to ride. And I didn't want Dan to be excluded because we didn't have the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So all three of us are vaccinated in preparation for the moment that we can be back and start our in-person. My guess is that, that we will be able to start in June or July in-person training for long-distance running, walking. And that, that ends in a fall festival at Villanova. We may not be able to be overnight at Villanova. That may not work, but at least we'll be able to train and have our eyes and our hands on our athletes and be present with them, tie their shoes, walk with them, read them their times. You know, I mean, it just, you know, I used to say we're there to take them to the bathrooms, you know, to, so that they're safe going to the bathroom. But, you know, really we do 
everything with them. It's not it's not just, oh, I'm their coach and I'm over here. We're, you know, I, I run with them. I walk with them. You know, I, I make sure they get the right foods. I talk to them about portion control. And, you know, I mean, all the things that, that I do with my own son in, in daily life. They need us to hear what they're saying. They need us to listen. And uh, I think some for some kids and adults, that's okay online. I think the higher the functioning, the online programs were a little bit better. It really wasn't good for Dan because he, he's gotten, our son has gotten more and more nonverbal and he's now stuttering and repeating the same thing over and over again. So mm-hmm. drastically everyone is noticing it's not just oh mom and dad think everyone is noticing he it's a flattening of his personality and if other people are seeing that that then this is covid too i mean i worry that it's you know the the, uh, jerome lejeune institute has done some pretty in-depth research on on the connection between down syndrome and and alzheimer's and and the understanding is that a hundred percent of of people with down syndrome will get Alzheimer's at some point in their life with an early onset in the third early 30s well Dan's 30 so that that's a, that's why you hear distress in our voice so we're 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 beginning the you know investigation is the the loss of cognition covid related only so i think that what's happening is that that a lot of people are maybe not seeing the signs and and we hear that over and over again that because everything was shut down people are not taking care and that's the great tragedy so if you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm speaking with Sue Ann Mayer about her great work across the board, but now focusing on her work with the Special Olympics that has taken a terrible hit during the pandemic. It makes me feel so sad what you're saying, Sue Ann, because mm. I have a son who's 17 and he's he's become very withdrawn over the pandemic. Mm. Being He was out of school for a long time. And then uh, thankfully, I'm in Florida. So we, we're in free Florida. So things are going right. really well for us. That's right. Um, but That's right. I have experienced a lot of anger over the months mm-hmm. um, because I don't think there has been a real uh, balancing of of negatives uh, as, as we have mm-hmm. approached the pandemic. Um, at, right. You know, from different places have approached it different ways, but the, there has not been a true balancing of, of damage that's being done. On the one hand, the virus, but on the other hand, so much so much human interaction that that was curtailed with real damage to real people (laughs) people Mm -hmm. like dan like my son and it makes me very sad that we're not and also that we're not climbing out of it fast enough for instance uh, where you are absolutely i'm an md i i hope i've been paying attention to to the covid thing from a medical perspective and it's 100 safe to be out of doors doing sports especially for young people who weren't um especially in danger to start with and for parents, I mean, we're confused. And I think the one of the things that our athletes and people with special needs have an unusual, unusually strong spiritual streak. And when, when they are in their families and the families are confused and, and anxious because there's a really long arm of reach that's going into our lives saying things that don't make sense. I mean, that really are this whole discussion of math outside, especially now that we're all vaccinated. To me, it's absurd. And, you know, I I think the kids are smart. They pick up those feelings of anxiousness and and confusion. And frustration, right? 
a lot of frustration. Yeah, I, I feel like our houses, our, our yeah. homes are just palaces of frustration these days. Well, you can't turn the news on. You just mm-hmm. cannot because it just it's not helpful. It's out of control. The whole labeling and, and discussions of labels mm. that yes, that's really, terrible. Our kids just freak for that, you know, and they just hold on to those words and words have consequences as you say. I mean, there are consequences to those words. And if people are casually you know, labeling, it just, it's very dangerous for the world that our kids who have very little language, but lots of emotion. And so if the people who are coaching them or volunteers or, or their families are not listening carefully, there, there's a lot of sadness and there's nowhere to go with that sadness. If you are trapped in your own uh, body without language and you can't go out and you can't do your sport and you can go online but Dan lives online on YouTube watching games and so the idea of somebody coming into his computer too and making him you know pay attention to whatever is not is not something he's interested in doing so oh, I, yes, I I'm with you I guess, the less yeah, computer yeah, uh, they when they yeah. offer you more computer time you're like no 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 more computer time. No, no more computers you know i mean just no 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 phones at dinner and no computers oh my gosh the you know i'm sure that that the, the facetime alone on computers has quadrupled and you know that's the best thing we can do is let all the wi-fi go down and be outside if we can possibly do it so I mean it's that that's how dangerous I think this has been for our guys another thing that made me sad over the pandemic was the closure or the temporary shutting down of the pregnancy resource centers that I work with here in the Miami area but I know that it happened across the country and I know that you this is a a large part of your life's work that you have founded several of these uh, pregnancy resource centers and did you also feel that that was a tragic consequence of the pandemic well Ours has been ours has been peripherally open. Marie, we have an organization called Legacy for Life, and she was able. Marie Joseph is the founder and director, and she was able to still help girls. And okay. um, yeah, so she. I mean, not fully, but they're the second. I think June, last. June, when the churches open, the centers could open. So there's two centers. There are two, we have two centers here, one in Bristol and one in Center City. And they both opened if, you know, and they're able, because they're, they're small numbers, they're able to follow all protocols. So they were able to take the, the, you know, have the free pregnancy testing. They were able to do the ultrasound that, you know, so the numbers are down on babies that, that were the center could say this year but at least they were open to help their problem the problem that marie's run into um has been many of the counselors themselves have contact (laughs) have gotten covid and so yeah so she's had to you know step in oh i I heard her just recently because she's a member of our parish i heard her recently to say i i you know or the i guess the president of the board is one of our best friends and and he was saying, 
Marie's beside herself. She can't do all the fundraising because she's she's doing all the counseling. Oh so, my gosh! So. <laughs> So this is this is one of the things that's happening. If you have young adults that are counseling, you know you've got you've got people who are exposed to to COVID, and you know even if they don't get that sick, they don't want the girls who are just pregnant to to get sick. So anyway, it's it's been kind of a a, a, a tightrope walk that Marie has been doing. But my my specific pro life work that where we founded life hotlines and life centers was in California. I, we were in California in 1973 to 1993. And at the time, we we founded 21 hotlines and 14 life centers for pregnant women in trouble. We were a very large organization called the Right to Life League of Southern California. So that was uh, 20 years of, of actually probably 17 of intimate work with pregnant women in trouble and doing a lot of education in Catholic schools all during the time in, in Los Angeles and in uh, Denver. Um, I've always taught in Catholic schools, So I have 41 years of Catholic education, junior high in, uh, in, um, in uh, Denver and was fair. I was very in, involved with the respect life group in Denver. We did found a center just before we left um, in right in front of the, the one of the biggest Planned Parenthood uh, facilities, second largest in the country. And it was called the lighthouse. Um, the lighthouse is a beautiful. And it was, it was literally in front of the Planned Parenthood center. Yeah. Yes, it is. Wow. Yes, it is. Good right? for you. And, and still, it still is. And um, I know someone came to, to the archbishop and he sent them him to Fran and they our best friends found the property and then found another donor who would kind of upgrade the the property and fix it so so it could house uh, a center for pregnant women in trouble and and now it's connected with Bella which is the authentic Catholic women's medical group that uh, that provides support for all all Catholic women in Denver so so there's a lot of exciting things there there's I have to be completely honest, after being involved, so involved in pro-life ministry, that coming here, I've never run into a parish that is so intimately motivated to care for uh, the, the the Women's Center in Bristol and then help the, the uh, Legacy for Life Foundation open a, a center in Center City, a women's center in Center City, also across from a planned parenthood <laughs> clinic that there's a great sense of christian service and responsibility here in philadelphia that you know i've been super involved in the west where we're very independent this has been the the most personally motivated parish everybody's involved here in the centers whether you're babysitting whether they 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 raised enough money to buy a house next to the Bristol Women's Center called the STAR, to house the STAR program, which teaches the women that choose to have their babies can come to the house next door and learn how to cook, how to uh, to sew, how to have a bank account, how to set up a, a budget, you know. Yeah, the life skills that are going to get them through. All the life skills. And so for me, it's been... A a beautiful thing to see that just blossom 
in, you know, we, we can help run the baby bottle pro- program. Now we're not counting the coins because of COVID. So people are putting checks in. They, they really, the fun, fundraising has been good. People have realized that there are people in trouble. And, um, you know, with the help of the Knights of Columbus, it's been intimately concerned about pregnant women and their babies. So I have to say that as really wonderful as as the the work that I did myself in California and was part of in, in Denver founding the Lighthouse, that this is really a very rich ministry for our whole parish at St. Ignatius of Antioch here in Yardley. I mean, and, and St. John's and Yardley and many parishes all through Bucks, Lower Bucks County. I'm very touched by how people care for these pregnant women. I mean, we got people who drive around and pick up diapers and, you know, anything that, that, that pregnant women need. So it's, it's been a, it's just because I've, you know, my main thrust has been the coaching and the care of Special Olympians. This has been just wonderful just to be a little part of this and, you know, to, to have it be, you know, beautifully successful and blossom right in front of my eyes right here in my own home parish so it's 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 sweet that that's happened like that because it's a to watch marie joseph is she's a pretty extraordinary young woman and uh, she's taken her idea and she's saved usually they save about 360 65 babies a year and that's a lot of babies. <laughs> when you look at those numbers, those are those are big numbers. You know, oh, for, that's amazing. That's wonderful yeah. to hear, Suan. In a dark time, also, you know, politically, yes, when yes. things seem to be going yeah. against us uh, in the right. pro-life camp. So it's wonderful that's to hear right. good news. And I'm sorry yeah. to say that we're out of time. How can our listeners, touched as as they are, as I am, by your explanation of the Special Olympics and how important that is, how can they help? Oh, absolutely. Go to our big website, and it's called Special olympicspa.org or SOPA, S-O-P-A, Special Olympics PA.org and, and it'll pop up and you can be a coach, you can be a volunteer. We have a big promotion going on now, a virtual um, run out of, because normally we would be preparing for Penn State. So there's a, a, a virtual run let me just see what uh, what is the name of our virtual run. Let me see if I can pull it up. We're doing something called Sona Moves right now. And so the run, let me um, just go to specialolympicspa.org. And there's just so many different things that, that you can do to help Special Olympians. And anybody by any means can come and talk to, to me or, or you can give them my contact information and I can certainly help anybody who's interested in um, being a volunteer, coming out to, I know one of, <laughs> I love the, the store Athleta, and all of, every year, a bunch of the women that work at Athleta store in our local town, Newtown, come out and help with long distance running when we have our local meet. So there are just tons of stuff, you know, um, that you can do to help. And you can also financially support the kids and that that would be great. And then they can continue participating. Well, that's very exciting, Suan. And we will pray that things get off the ground soon, that Bucks County lets you all <laughs> go out get back and enjoy person. the wonderful <laughs> weather in person outside right. and do all those wonderful things. So thank you so much for joining us today, Suan. Thank you so much. God bless. 
back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and now I'm alongside my TCA colleague and good friend, Maureen Ferguson. How are you, Maureen? Thank you for joining me again today. Great to be on with you, Gracie. We are awaiting Senator Marsha Blackburn's uh, call so that we can interview her. We have lots of interesting things to talk about with her. But, you know, you and I were talking about earlier, Maureen, we're talking about a friend of the show and recent developments in his life. We're talking about Dan Crenshaw. We wanted to make sure that our listeners were aware so that they could pray for him that he's undergoing some additional medical anxiety about his eyesight. That's right. Congressman Dan Crenshaw was injured in Afghanistan by by an IED. He lost one of his eyes and he really lost half of the use of his other eye. Well, his good eye just had uh, the, the retina was starting to detach. So he's just had to undergo emergency surgery back in. I'm sorry, I think I said Dallas, but he's actually from Houston. But he just underwent this emergency surgery and he's really asking people for prayers because he's essentially going to be blind for several weeks and has to sort of lie motionless while he heals. So he's a heroic Navy SEAL who now serves in the Congress, and he's really just such an, an inspiring, in an age where there aren't too many politicians that are terribly inspiring, this is a really good one, and Congressman Crenshaw really needs our prayers. Congressman Crenshaw is also a person who shows um, a spirit of courage in all his dealings as a politician, which I find very admirable, and I think it must come from his training as as a serviceman no and and the way that the way that he's able to put himself out there for his principles uh, sometimes we don't see politicians that are able to do that I, I think you're exactly right Gracie and he, he's also super smart he's got a graduate degree from Harvard in addition to being a Navy SEAL <laughs> war hero so he, he wrote a book called Fortitude American Resilience in the Era of Outrage and he he was one of the first people who was really out there calling out this cancel culture. And he's someone who really does work to bring people together and stick to the issues. And he's just a real person of integrity, really to be admired in a time when there aren't too many politicians to be looking up to these days. You know, not all politicians are spineless, right, Maureen? And another one that's not spineless is Senator Marsha Blackburn, who'll be joining us soon. And we're going to talk to her about the act that she's proposed, Women's Women's Right Right to Know Act. Yes, mm-hmm. that should roll right off my tongue. Uh, she's also been instrumental uh, when she was in Congress in fighting against uh, Planned Parenthood's uh, use of fetal uh, or misuse or selling of fetal tissue for research, something that's been in the news again this week. Well, so when the Biden administration repealed the pro-life policy that prohibited tax-funded research on aborted children, the Bishop's Conference, of course, put out a statement in opposition to this, and President Biden press secretary, Jen Psaki, was asked about it. And she said, well, we, we just respectfully disagree. It's just really problematic when you have a public figure who used his faith to appeal to Catholic voters. He literally had his rosary beads and his campaign ads. And when he makes such a point of wearing his faith on his sleeve, it's just such a pity and tragic, really, when he so very publicly rejects the essential teachings of our faith. Yeah, I think he's been doing a lot of respectful disagreeing in the first 100 days with a lot of the core tenets of our faith. It's it's sad to have uh, someone of such stature as a, as a Catholic not hold on to the most basic things that we believe in, which is the dignity of life. But now uh, we have Senator Blackburn on the phone, so let's welcome her to the show. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, Senator Blackburn. 
Thank you. I'm delighted to join you. Thank you so much. Well, we're so delighted to have um, Senator Marsha Blackburn with us, serving the great state of Tennessee. And we wanted to chat with you about the Women's Right to Know Act that you just introduced in the Senate last week. And this act works to protect the health of pregnant women and their unborn children by providing medical information so that there is informed consent before abortions. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this very important bill that you just introduced? Yes, indeed. You know, if you were to go in for an outpatient surgery, you would have a consultation prior to that surgery, and they would explain the procedure to you, the amount of time it was going to take, probably give you a good idea of what you would feel coming out of that surgery, what kind of pain you would experience, and then your recovery time. They do a pretty good job of saying, here's the process, here's the medications, physically, mentally, emotionally, this is what you can expect. But when it comes to abortion, they do not want to give this information to a woman. They don't want to tell her what the approximate gestational age of that unborn baby is. They don't want to tell her what to expect. And I imagine that the two of you, like me, have talked with women who had abortions and they will say, I wish I had known then what I know now. I would have made a different decision. I would have thought twice. I would have been more prepared. I would have had a better idea of the emotions and the regret that I would have. But this type information is missing for women. And we know if you're going to give informed consent for any type of medical procedure, you have to be given this information by a healthcare professional. So we're just saying, please extend to women these same assurances to make that informed decision. Senator, I'm a, I'm a doctor and we, we study informed consent all the time. In fact, I was just studying to renew my license every year. I have to do continuing medical education. And one of the things I was reading up on, enforced by, by the rules no, of, of renewing my license, is on informed consent. And one of the things that's very important in informed consent is alternatives. We have to give up a, a patient, whenever we offer a treatment or a surgery, we have to give the patient alternatives. And I feel that's one of the things that's probably missing very often in the office of an, of an abortionist. Well, of course, that is something that is missing, is knowing what those alternatives would be, knowing what resources would be out there if you chose to make a decision to keep that baby. And we also know that there is not a lot of information given from these clinics. For a period of time, we had stopped the resale of fetal body parts in tissues. And now we are hearing that many of these clinics are back in the business of brokering these baby body parts. Uh, If a clinic is going to do that, a woman should have that kind of information. They should be allowed to have a full understanding of what is there in that procedure. And you know, I find it so interesting that sometimes the not necessarily always the pro-choice crowd, but the pro-abortion crowd will say, say, oh, we want to make certain that this is addressed as health care. Abortion is health care. We want it to be covered by federal funds because it is health care. But then 
when it comes to a clinic, having health care professionals that have admitting privileges at a hospital, they say, well, no, this is an elective procedure. When it comes to giving the information to make informed consent, they want to act as if this is not a medical procedure, that it is some kind of elective procedure. It's so true that the abortion lobby tries to have it both ways on this, Senator Blackburn, the way that they try to mainstream abortion as healthcare, as just another healthcare procedure, but yet they seek so many carve-outs, which Mm -hmm. is so tragic because the abortion industry is so predatory. They're making money off of women who are in, you know, at one of the most vulnerable times of their lives. So you mentioned the fetal tissue research issue, and we want to chat with you as well about that, Senator Blackburn. The very sad news that the Biden administration has ended the pro-life regulations on fetal tissue research. And we know it's an issue that's really important to you because you work so hard on investigations into Planned Parenthood's involvement into this unethical research when you were in the House of Representatives. Well, I think the big thing we have to look at here is that this crowd that is in the White House right now, it is not that they would classify themselves as pro-choice. They would classify themselves as pro-abortion. And it is almost as if abortion is a part of their religion, that this woman's body is a body unto herself, and that the unborn child is not to be taken into consideration. So I find that to be a very sad state for our country, and really a sad position. They're trying to get rid of the Hyde Amendment language in Mexico City and the other provisions that we have had. Indeed, halting the sale of the fetal body parts was really important. Making certain that clinics that performed abortions did not get those women's health care funds, federal taxpayer dollars that are used to provide health care to women who are underserved. But they have reversed all of those. And why is that? Because to them, having abortion readily available, abortion on demand, that is something that is one of their key that is that is such a sad thing that these people are in charge in so many ways and reversing so many wonderful pro-life policies that were advanced during the previous administration. One of the things that they've changed that I was very sad about on this same issue of fetal tissue research is that they disbanded an ethics committee that the pre- that the Trump administration had put in so that when at the NIH when when a scientist wanted to use fetal tissue that there was an extra layer so they had to go through a special ethics committee because it is a very complicated ethical question of how do you procure this tissue? Where does this tissue come from? Are people, are women being, you can imagine a scenario where women are being not told that their that their baby's body parts are going to be used in an experiment, which they could find very offensive. Or number two, even women encouraged to abort so that this money can change hands and that they can sell this, this fetal tissue. Well, and this is part of that informed consent, women not knowing. Uh-huh. And this is why you have to give this full range of information. And these clinics 
should be required to give that information. We're not saying in this bill, you cannot have an abortion. We are saying in this bill, if a woman decides that she wants to look into having an abortion, then this full range of information should be made available to her so that she will have the opportunity to make an informed decision. Senator, one of the things that I have found that women are very ignorant about is chemical abortion. And chemical abortion is being is also being pushed by this administration. They're asking the FDA to, re, to reduce any of the safety measures that are rightfully placed around this dangerous procedure. And women are being offered this uh, kind of abortion and being told it's no big deal. Do you think that your act would also help inform women uh, around chemical abortion? Anything that gets more information to women and highlights the issue that there is a full range of information that should be given to women. Anything that puts in place a better standard operating procedure is going to be good for women and their unborn babies. Senator Blackburn, before we let you go, I know we only have a couple minutes left, but we don't want we don't want to let you go until we ask you about your book that came out last year. It's called The Mind of a Conservative Woman Seeking the Best for Family and Country. We'd love to hear what inspired this book and I really want to encourage our listeners to go buy it. It's a great gift for our daughters and Uh, other young women that we know. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that we deal with every day as conservative women is that we're kind of at the bottom of the list. Uh, The media likes to beat up on us. The left likes to say, you have to submit to our agenda and conform to our way of doing things. And they really are not receptive to having or hearing from women who are independent-minded, who are going to make their own decisions. And whether it is working through the confirmation of Justice Barrett, uh, and we were so pleased to see her on the court, or so many other qualified women who are conservatives who have stepped up to lead. Repeatedly, what we see is that they are subjected to ridicule. They are subjected to uh, being removed from groups. Uh, They are not included many times in decision-making processes. And uh, so conservative women who, by the way, most women in this country are wives and moms and uh, they're in the workforce and they're involved in their communities. They have very multifaceted lives. They're very much like conservative women that are in both the private and the public sector. And uh, I felt like it was time to tell that story of how women get treated and to encourage women in this era of cancel culture to find a way to speak up, to have conversations with friends, whether you're talking about the issue of life or the border or what is happening with taxes or health care policy. Some of those can be difficult conversations, but you know what we cannot do is just say, well, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. What we do have to do is find a way to return to civil discourse, to ask those questions that invite robust response 
respectful bipartisan debate. Our nation and our nation's freedom has depended on having that robust, respectful debate and finding a way to agree to disagree, but to encourage free speech and hearing one another out. So that is what inspired me, and that is the reason that I decided that was a story worth telling. Senator, liberal and progressive women, sometimes when when they speak out, when they propose their views, they can be a little rough and a little vulgar. I'm thinking of things like the Women's March, you know, the vulgarity there. I feel that conservative women can speak out in a in a much better way, in a way that unifies and doesn't offend. Absolutely. Speaking out in a way that is courteous and respectful is very important, very important for women to do. And as I will say to people, okay, let's have a conversation about this. Tell me why you think I'm wrong. Now, one of the things we know is that you never change someone's mind, ever, if you're going to get into a knockdown, drag-out fight with them. But if you say, I'm willing to listen to you, have at it. The floor is yours. Then you open that opportunity to have that conversation. And many times what will happen, you know, and, and let me just say it like this. Sometimes the very best way to help someone change their mind or to see a different side of an issue is to really meet them where they are, understand why they are hurting, understand why they are questioning, and give them the opportunity to express that and then begin that conversation. That's wonderful advice, Senator. I think that you're perfectly correct. It's only heart to heart that we that we really change minds, right? It's uh, it's not uh, right. yelling. It's not loud voices to loud voices. So thank you so much, Senator. I hope that our our listeners pick up your book. It's a wonderful book and and full of um, great insight about how to be how to be a successful conservative woman and and triumph over cancel culture. And and also we'll be praying for the success of the act. I, I think um, that it's it's a fabulous idea and that the women of America need that. Thank you so much. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Jesus is going to give us one of his most powerful images, which reveals the type of relationship he wants to have with us and have us have with others. He also describes for us the means for us to live a truly successful life according to his terms. He tells us, I am the vine, you are the branches. He and his faithful, he and the church, exist together as vine and branches. This image of the fruitful union of God and his people was foretold throughout the Old Testament. The prophets often compared Israel to a vine. Isaiah declared, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Hosea added, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. All this was depicted visually in a stunning golden relief of a vine with clusters of grapes as big as adults running around the outside walls of the temple of Jerusalem. The church is the fulfillment of this image. The temple stands for God, and when the people in faith attach themselves to God, they become a luxuriant vine, stretching out its branches and bearing fruit even into the desert. Jesus was probably calling upon his apostles' obvious knowledge of this golden sculpture as he was depicting the image of the vine and the branches on Holy Thursday night because they likely would have seen the gilded vine as they visited the temple earlier that day. The problem we know from our knowledge of sacred scripture is that Israel as a whole didn't stay attached to God in this way. 
God would later ask to Isaiah, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done? Why, when I looked for the crop of grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? It didn't bear good fruit because it had detached itself from God through sin. Jesus mentioned this in one of his parables when he said that the vineyard owner sent multiple waves of servants and finally a son to collect a share of grapes at harvest time. But the tenants of the vineyard manhandled the servants and killed the son. This was referring to salvation history and to the way Israel treated the prophets God sent to them and treated even Jesus himself. God looked to Israel to bear good fruit, deeds of love and union with him. But so often the harvest that was yielded was the wild fruit of wild life, rejecting God's prophets, God's word, God's love, God's son. That's why Jesus at the beginning of the passage this Sunday said, I am the true vine. He was contrasting himself with the unfaithfulness of those who had failed to produce the harvest of love God wants in the world. He had come to replant the vine, to become the new temple, to make possible our bearing good fruit. You know, the great mystery of Sunday's gospel and all of salvation history. God makes the fruit he bears dependent on our being fruitful branches. We know a vine can't bear fruit without branches. The stem bears only branches, but it's the branches that bear the grapes. For God to bear his fruit in the world, in other words, he has chosen to depend on us that we may remain attached to him and bear good fruit. Otherwise, the great gift of his salvation, his love, won't be seen in the world. People won't be saved, and the sap of his love will be wasted. Jesus wants to bear fruit in you and me. He wants his love to flow through us and through the church. He wants us to bear not wild grapes that are good for nothing, but fruit that will endure into eternal life. The church exists as branches on Christ the vine, precisely to bear this abundant harvest of the fruit of love. What's necessary for that to occur? Jesus tells us we have to abide in him. Whether we bear good fruit or not totally depends on whether we remain in him or not. He tells us, abide in me as I abide in you. Just as a branch can't bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. To abide in Jesus is far more than a wish to be in communion with Jesus. It has practical consequences that we see throughout the gospel. We can focus briefly on five things we need to do truly to abide in Jesus. First, to abide in him, we have to keep his commandments. He tells us in the continuation of Sunday's gospel, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. The commandments train us to love God and love others. And we can't be abiding in God unless we love him and try to love others as he has loved us first. Second, to abide in Jesus, we must listen to his word. He tells us, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. We must be people who abide in the word of God, who let what God has said echo within us. We must act on what Jesus said to the devil. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must live by the principle that St. Peter and the apostles lived by. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If we don't know the word of God, if our Bibles just take up space in our bookshelves, if we don't seek to become living commentaries on what God has taught, then we will bear little fruit. That's why it's so great that millions of Catholics are now listening to the Bible in a Year podcast with Father Mike Schmitz, or otherwise trying to grow in their knowledge, love, and living of sacred scripture. To abide in Christ, we must abide in his word. And that brings us to the third point. To abide in Jesus, we must also be pruned by God the Father through the word of God. 
Jesus says that the Father takes away every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit. And everyone that does, he prunes so that it bears more fruit. You are already pruned, he concluded, by the word that I spoke to you. The word of God prunes us. It helps us to cut off from our lives whatever won't bear fruit in God. It helps us to set our priorities straight. To cut out all the time we waste, for example, watching television or another distraction. So that we may use our gift of time, not for selfish pursuits, not for worthless diversions, but for God and in love of others. Many times we can do that type of pruning ourselves by making a resolution to cut out the way we waste time so that our energies can go exclusively into bearing fruit. But sometimes when we don't do so, God the Father, out of love, may prune us himself taking away certain things that we might desire so that we may begin to grow in the way God really wants us to grow. To abide in Jesus means to give God permission to do this pruning and to pray about how he wants us to be pruned every day, beginning now. Fourth, to abide in Jesus, we must spread the faith. St. John wrote in his first letter, God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God and they abide in God. If God really abides in us and we in Him, then how could we possibly keep within us the love we have experienced? Those who abide in God want to spread love of Him as naturally as a good apple tree bears good apples. We can't keep within the joy of living the faith, the happiness that comes from communion with God. The last point is to abide in Jesus. We must live a truly Eucharistic life. Jesus told us in his famous Bread of Life discourse in St. John chapter 6, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Abiding in Jesus begins with hungering for him in Holy Communion and receiving him worthily. It involves wanting a loving communion with others. And it flourishes in wanting to be a fruit and do this in memory of him to give others our body and our blood out of love for him and others. Those five things. To abide in Jesus, we have to keep his commandments. We have to listen to his word. We must allow ourselves to be pruned. We must spread the faith. We must live a Eucharistic life. The Mass is the living summary of the gospel of the vine and the branches. In it, we consecrate the fruit of the vine, the true vine Jesus squeezed out during the Passion on the cross. But we also consecrate the work of human hands, we who are the branches. God the Father returns this to us as our spiritual drink that we offer to Him under the appearance of wine. In the Eucharist, the fruit that we give with Christ, the fruit of the vine and the branches, reaches its climax. If we live this Eucharist, if we keep this communion with the Lord, if we live this loving union, then Jesus promises, and His word is a guarantee. We will bear fruit that will endure to eternity. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 